So we're in Jonah chapter 4, and uh, as I was preparing this, this letter kind of came to mind. It's a letter from a young woman in college, and she writes home to her parents. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, I thought I should write you before you receive the bill from the hospital, so you'd not be too alarmed. Let me say first that I did manage to escape only with minor burns and a few fractures when my dormitory burned to the ground last week. And having nowhere to live, I know you will understand why I am rooming with this very attractive and interesting student uh, who has so generally offered me a quarter. And um, while he's not exactly a communist, I, um, I'd call him more of a practicing Marxist. And uh, he's from one of the more rebellious and underdeveloped nations, and I know you won't be too alarmed or bothered about these facts. Yet I must face the possibility that it uh, may upset you to hear that by the time I come home for the holidays, I will have become a mother. Love, Betsy. And then she has this little P.S. at the bottom. P.S., none of these things are true, but I did get a D-minus in political science, and I flunked math. <laughs> I just wanted you to see those grades in proper perspective. <laughs> Sometimes perspective helps, right? And what we seek uh, this morning from the book of Jonah is not a different perspective, but an actual biblical perspective. And as we sort of look at this journey through Jonah from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's interesting because we come to this place in chapter 4 where sort of God reveals where he's been getting at and where he's been wanting to take Jonah this entire process. And I think a lot of us, each and every one of us, should be able to relate to this in some form or fashion. And if you're new visiting here this morning, um, I have people ask me. They say, now, Jason, do you really believe that Jonah got swallowed up by that fish? And, you know, was this? And I think if, if, if you've been in the journey with us, I think we've laid some very uh, compelling grounds for this in chapter th two, and we're going to kind of recap that this morning. Uh, but yes, I do believe that. Probably not in the way that most people do. Um, and if you were here through chapter 2 with this, you've seen that too, and I think we made uh, some compelling evidence for that. We're going to explore it a bit this morning. Um, but we're going to go back through. I want you to turn back with me to chapter 1, just as we recap this. Remember, we went through and we chronicled, and we went back through the Old Testament, and we discovered that God has always wanted his people to be a missionary people, to be his witnesses as he uh, did. We explored all the way back to First Chronicles and the Psalms and Isaiah. And all along we see that God wants his people to be a missionary people. And we witnessed that. We chronicled that. We've seen Jonah and the word of the Lord come to Jonah to do this very thing to reach out to Nineveh. Which at that time historically we understand is um, very rebellious. Uh, history describes them as evil. God's word describes them as evil. These were terrorists. They were murderous. Um, they would actually, I'm just, I, don't, I didn't cover this in chapter 1, but they would actually uh, infiltrate the northern tribes. They would slaughter everybody. They would take pregnant mothers, rip their babies from the, room, from, from the womb, and take them back to their country and raise them as slaves. I mean, these people were rough. And so God calls Jonah to go to these people and to 
preach and call out against them. And Jonah knew exactly what for. God said, go, go preach to them. And then we see Jonah, what does Jonah do? We put that slide up and we see that um, Jerusalem and the northern kingdom's here. And then we see Nineveh up here. And then we see Jonah running in the exact opposite direction. Not going to do it. I quit. Right? And he takes off in the opposite direction. Very rebellious. And then God brings storms and trials. And that continues into verse 2. God's correcting his path. In verse 2, actually starting at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, the very, the very last verse of 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. They swallowed him up. And um, we see that this points us to Christ. And we learn that the greatest blessings and mercies in life are those that push us towards a dependency on Christ. And that's what we discover in chapter 2. Matter of fact, we even discovered that this story, um, as we've been often told, is not about the fish, right? The story of Jonah is not about the fish. Matter of fact, it's not even about Jonah. It's not even about the people of Nineveh. We're going to dive into really more what this story is about. But we see in chapter 2 that the story of Jonah points us to Christ. You remember this? Look at the very beginning. When Jonah gets swallowed up in chapter 2, he said, I called out to the Lord of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol's the, uh, the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. And the idea of the belly of Sheol, that, that's the center, the core. He's saying he called out from the realm of the dead. And it has this very this interesting language where this imagery of the weeds being wrapped about his head, how he's dropped down to the bottom, the roots of the ocean, which is of the mountains, which is below, down in the ocean. We have this very figurative language. And so if you remember, I put up a, a, a screen, a slide, that showed this um, picture. You guys all seen the movie or the <coughs> Disney cartoon Pinocchio? And Geppetto's in the whale, and he's got his little fish, and he's floating around trying to, you know, time the waves to get out. That's sort of the picture I think most people have in their head of the story of Jonah, right? But my contention is, my belief is this, is the, figure, the, the language that we see in chapter 2 is describing Jonah's death. And that he's swallowed up by the great fish, and that Jonah actually died. I think the language suggests that. But the real reason why I believe that is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. When Jesus got to doing all these signs, all these miracles, and the scribes and Pharisees in disbelief in rebellion come to Jesus and said, right, if you're the Messiah, I'm paraphrasing, if you're the Messiah, then prove it. Show us a sign. Well, forget the fact that he just got done showing several. Jesus says, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. None will be given to it. Except this, the sign of Jonah. So we must ask the question, what's the sign of Jonah? Was the sign of Jonah a rebellious prophet? Is that what Jesus displayed? No, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. Well, then what's the sign of Jonah? Did Jonah, Jesus, was, was he going to go into the tomb and just hang out for three days and three nights and twiddle his thumbs and wait. I'm back. Was that the sign? 
No. What's the sign of Jonah? Resurrection. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, died, barfed up on the beach, and was resurrected. That's the sign of Jonah. Pointing us to Christ. Christ is the better Jonah. And we think that's the big miracle of the story of Jonah. We flip to the next chapter and we realize in chapter 3 that the great miracle in Jonah is that the entire nation of Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, repented and believed. Every one of them. That's the miracle of Jonah. That's the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes and he, and he calls out, and this is, you guys want to know, the greatest evangelistic sermon in all the world. It's five words in Hebrew. I think it's seven or eight in English. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Drops the mic, right? Everyone repents, covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, turns to God, and God relents of the disaster, it says, that he said he would do. That's the greatest miracle. It's amazing. Every man, woman, child, from the greatest, from the king down to the least, that they repented and believed, and God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do. That's the greatest miracle. Here's the issue. This is the path Jonah was going on. Jonah was born with the word of God. He was a prophet of God. He lived in the northern kingdom of the people of God. He was blessed. Amen? God told him to go, to be a missionary like he'd always had. Go to, what they would put it, the pagans, the Gentiles, and preach to them. And Jonah says, they don't deserve it. They're our enemies. You don't know what they've done to us. I don't want them to have that. And so he ran so that they wouldn't. How many people kind of grew up hearing like, like the story of Jonah? Well, Jonah was just afraid of the mighty Ninevites. Well, as we read the story, that's not the case. I'm sure there was a certain amount of fear of walking into the enemy's camp. But Jonah clearly says the reason why he didn't want to go. He didn't think they deserved God's grace. Amen? He didn't want them to have it. So here's the question that we start with today. Here's the question of the day. I want you to think about it before you answer. Does everyone deserve God's grace? Does everyone? Really? Everyone? We can't think of some people in history that say, surely not. Some of you are thinking, well, I thought that was the case, but maybe I'm not sure now. Let's just hold on to that question, okay? Let's hold on to that question. Let's look at verse 1 of today's text, first chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. See, Jonah thought he deserved God's grace, but he didn't want Nineveh to receive God's grace. Look at the first few verses. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, this is right after. God forgives them. It relents. And then here's the prophet of God with the message of God, and he doesn't like it. 
He doesn't like God's grace being displayed on him. So it says here, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and a merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in shade till he could see what became of the city. See, Jonah thought he deserved God's grace, but didn't want Nineveh to receive God's grace. And so apparently Jonah goes outside, he tells God, isn't this what I was saying all along? He's actually, from the very beginning, he wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. From the very beginning, Jonah said, I knew you're gracious and abounding and steadfast. I knew it. And I knew that if I went there and I took a message of judgment, they would believe it, they'd turn, and you'd forgive them. That's what he's, that's what he's concerned with. And he says, therefore, that's why I left. I don't want them to have it. I don't want them to have the opportunity. And I knew you'd forgive them because that's just who you are. You're just forgiving. I don't want you to forgive them. Isn't this crazy? This is unbelievable. They don't deserve it. Matter of fact, several times throughout this, Jonah says, remember back in the ship? Just throw me overboard. Like three or four times in the book of Jonah, he's like, just kill me. I'll just be dead. I'd rather die. Like three or four times. So much so that the enemies of Israel would not receive the grace of God. Even in 5 and 6, watch this. So even after he sits down, makes this makeshift shelter, this little booth, apparently wasn't a very good one, because in verse 6 it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant. And it made him to come up over Jonah, that he might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So even in his disobedience and rebellion, God says, I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to grow this plant here and give you shade and comfort, and I'm still going to provide blessings and grace, and we have to, at this point, we have to ask the question, what did Jonah do to deserve God's grace? I already said he was born into the northern kingdom. He was a prophet, which means he had the word of God. God appointed a great fish, even in his rebellion, to correct him and turn his course around to bring about repentance. Here, he's appointing a plant to grow up and provide shade for Jonah's comfort. What did Jonah do? Don't we at this point, church, don't we have to sort of kind of step back for a second and ask the questions ourselves? Like, what have we done to deserve God's grace? I mean, as I look at the blessings, oftentimes we think of blessings differently, right? But let's just go back to the basic ones. We were born in a country that has available and plentiful clean water to drink. Is that not an amazing blessing when you look at the scope of the world? That in and of itself is amazing. We were born into a country 
that God's word is plentiful. How many people are like me and have multiple Bibles that they own? Right? Access. <laughs> Anybody got their Bible on their phone? Like everywhere you go, you got the word of God. What an amazing blessing that that is. Food? We live in a country that financially, now I understand oftentimes we sort of look and sort of compare and maybe compared to others, maybe I don't have this blessing, but we look at the scope of the world, boy, we are so financially blessed. We have so much to be thankful for. And what did we do to deserve any of those things I just mentioned? Nothing. We've done nothing to deserve that. Here's where the story gets really interesting. Here's where God starts to start to bring out what he's been trying to do this entire time. Look at verses 7 and 8. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, and here we see his sovereignty, appointed the plant, here appointed a worm, it says, that attacked the plant so that it withered. Why would he do that? Then in verse 8 says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. This Here he is again. And said, it's far better for me to die than to live. Now, what's God doing? This is really interesting. Like, okay, so he's provided for Jonah this entire time, and he's, he's blessed him with all his blessings. He calls him as a prophet. Jonah's disobedient continually. God turns him around. Jonah comes to the place where he realizes um, in chapter uh, 2, I think it's verse 10, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Literally, salvation is of the Lord. And Jonah repents and believes, turns in faith. He's now obedient. He's reluctant. And I think we can all agree we've been there. How many people besides me, you've, you've been there? Like, you, okay, here's what God's will is. I'm walking in. I'm not happy about it, but I'm just going to be obedient. Anybody else besides me been there, right? So we understand this is where Jonah is, and he's turning. He's, he's, he's in the will of God. He's going to go do what he's supposed to do, but he ain't happy about it. We've been there. But now all of a sudden, God provides shade, and he's concerned with his comfort. And then the very next day, he appoints a worm, and that same shade provision is now withered, and he's got no shade. But then even worse, he appoints a great scorching wind and heat, and it comes, and it's almost to the point where he's like ready to faint. You guys see those movies of the desert, and they're walking, and they just can't walk any further, and the sun's beating down, and he's just out, the, no water. That's where Jonah's at. He's ready to faint. God did that. What's God doing? This is interesting, right? What is God doing? And then God asked a very pointed question here in the very beginning of verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? That's a good question, isn't it? Do you do well to be angry? In other words, do you have any right to be angry for the plant? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Do we have any right to be born in a country with clean water? Is that, is, is that our right? This whole idea, in taking a look at a perspective, God's really working on Jonah's perspective, isn't he? 
And we see things from a certain perspective. And God sees things from a true and right perspective. Amen? How many people would agree that our perspective isn't always right? Often, if you're like me, it's not right. Right? But God's perspective is always true and right. And so God asked this question. He takes him to the place here, and he asks this question. He's beginning to work on his thing. Do you have a right to be angry? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this is Jonah's response. And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's sour, right? Can we say at this point that Jonah's perspective was off, right? Anybody besides me, perspective been off before, right? We can just say that. And so God, in this message of Jonah, not only is he teaching Jonah, he's teaching us in the process as well. Angry enough to die. Now, what's interesting here is God has Jonah right where he wants him. God's got Jonah right where he wants him. All the events of the story lead up to this point. And then there's a couple statements here in verses 10 and 11, and then we're left hanging. I think we'll ponder that together here at the end, but all the events of the story lead up to this point. Look at verses 10 and 11. Do you do well to be angry? Yes, I do. And then verse 10, he says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then here's the compelling statement or question. God says in verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. In other words, we might start with the premise of this. What's more valuable? People, creatures, cattle, livestock, or a plant? We first start with that. Which would be more valuable? People, right? But then there's even another element to it is who labored for all those things? Who created and labored for every single one of those things? People, plants, cattle, worms, fish, the people of Nineveh. Who labored for those? God did. Did Jonah labor for any of them? No. So God's asking the question, from my perspective, Jonah, what should we care about? People. We should care about people. As we get caught up in our day-to-day, can we get distracted in other things than people? Can we have an internal perspective and not an eternal one? See, Jonah's not about the fish. It's not even about Nineveh's repentance, ultimately. It's for sure not even about Jonah. And guess what? Who else it's not about? It's not about you. It's not about me. See, Jonah had an internal perspective. God wants us to have an eternal perspective. Amen? We are brought down into our internal perspective. God wants us to have an eternal perspective 
perspective, a, a focus, and see, how, see things how God sees them. See, to Jonah, God's grace was for his people. It was for him personally. Jonah was focused on the temporal, what satisfied him. It was all about Jonah. And God here repeatedly over and over and over saying, Jonah, it's not about you. It's not even about Nineveh. Ultimately, it's about me. Look at things from my perspective. And that's why he didn't want to take the message to Nineveh in the first place. That's why he was more concerned about a silly little plant than he was 120,000 people. He wasn't looking at their souls. See, the perspective needed to change. And I think what I want everybody to see this morning as we keep going is this. I want your perspectives to change this morning. I asked the question, does everyone deserve God's grace? See, Jonah thought that it was him. Jonah thought that it was all about him and his people. And he didn't want Nineveh to have God's grace. And so we asked the question, does everyone deserve God's grace? No. No. The answer to the question is no. Not everyone deserves God's grace. I see a lot of funny faces here. The answer to the question is, is no one deserves God's grace. That's the point that God was bringing Jonah to. Jonah didn't deserve God's grace. Nineveh didn't deserve God's grace. No one does. Grace to be grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. The story of Jonah is about God's gracious, loving nature. No one deserves it. That's the perspective that God wants us to see here this morning. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of that sin. What are wages? That's what you earn, right? What we've earned, the sin has earned us death. The wages of sin is death. That's the perspective of the scriptures. That's the perspective of Jonah. God's saying, I've labored for all of this, and none of you deserve it. But God's gracious, and he's good, and he's kind, and he's loving. And so he gives his grace, and he gives his mercy. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. Mercy is God withholding, not giving us what we do deserve. Death. That's what Jonah's pointing us to. And let me just tell you this morning, church, it's the same for Jonah. Because the story's not about the fish, it's not about Jonah, it's not about Nineveh. The story's about God. And that's what God's telling us through this, that he's gracious and he's kind and he's provided reconciliation. And it's free. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. That means you don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. That's the message. That's the message. That's where God's bringing Jonah to. See, Jonah thought he deserved God's grace and that they didn't. God's bringing him to the perspective here that, no, Jonah, you don't either. The fact that you were born into the northern kingdom and that I gave you my revelation and, and you were the northern city of and all these things, all these blessings, the fact that you have clean water, the fact that all these things that we have, 
It's God's grace. And then we don't deserve any of them, and that changes our perspective from an internal one to an eternal one. So that, church, if I don't deserve God's message or God's grace and you don't deserve God's grace, guess what else? Those people you don't care for either, they don't deserve it either. But the point is God's gracious. And he gives it freely. And so we learn from the story, it's not about Jonah, it's not about a fish, it's not about Nineveh. The point here is that we can fall into the same self-centered thinking when our perspective is internal, internal and not eternal. When our perspective is internal and temporal versus eternal from God's perspective. See, this, this should regulate every aspect of how we do life. Amen? When we understand that none of us really deserve it, that we all fall short and we all sin, we all make mistakes, how does this operate in our area of conflicts? If I'm upset with Mike, Mike offended me. and he, Let's say it was really bad. Let's just say Mike was just a real big jerk, right? From an internal perspective, I want, I want to make things right, and he needs to know. Right? You guys know. You've been there. But an eternal perspective says, I can say now as Mike, a brother, he's saved by the grace of God like I am. He falls short just like I, I do. And if I claim reconciliation, if I claim forgiveness of God, who am I not to then now give it to Mike? And this is very important because the next, this is so important, the next series that we're going into is forgiveness. What's the big deal with forgiveness? And then as Christians, to, to claim the forgiveness of Christ and then to withhold it from others. How dare we? This matters in our conflicts because does Mike deserve forgiveness? No. But do I forget? Do I deserve it? No. But I've been given it, so who am I to deny it? This regulates our conflicts. Yeah, but Jason, you just don't understand what they did to me. I know I don't. I don't want to make light of any of that. I don't. But from an eternal perspective, goes by like that. Yeah, but you don't know how they made me feel. You don't know how wrong they are. We have to ask the question, are we trying to spend more time getting people right with us or getting them right with God? Are we more concerned about winning the argument or winning the person? See, from an inter internal perspective, I'm concerned about being right. I'm concerned about winning the argument. From an eternal perspective, what does it matter? What does it matter? We're here for a flicker. This life is minuscule and fractional compared to eternity. What does it matter in eternity if someone offends me here in this little flicker? What does it matter? It doesn't. What does it matter in eternity if I didn't get my way here? What does it matter in eternity? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. What does it matter ultimately if someone hurt me or offended me here on this side of eternity? 
If my thinking is eternal, the overwhelming majority of the things that we get wrapped up in don't matter. Amen? I'm not saying that there aren't eternal matters that do, but the overwhelming majority of the things we do get caught up and wrapped up in and we want to steer off and go into the ditch over, ruin relationships, ruin friendships, put walls and barriers up for the gospel that really matter for the souls of people, ultimately, what do those things matter? And I just want to say from the church's perspective, can we just say for a second that we live in a lost and dying world? The Bible makes that clear. We look out at the world and we, that's, that's evident that eternity is at stake and there are souls every day that are going into eternity. And some are separated from God. And here we are as the church in America, we're sitting on the sidelines, bickering, squabbling over things that most of them don't even matter. Because all of us are focused internally. Me being right and my preferences being met and, and doing things my way and it shouldn't be this way and everybody should do things the way I want to do it. And In eternity, what does it matter? What does it matter? See, the problem is with us being on the sidelines, we're in the exact same place that the Israelites were in, where Jonah was. God was calling them to be witnesses. Instead, they were bickering over things that didn't matter, self-righteous. Their neighbors were enemies. What does it matter in eternity? What do all those things matter? It doesn't. We are to be his missionaries. And as the Old Testament, the New Testament puts it, we are to be his witnesses. I'll just tell you, like Jonah, I need reminded of that hourly. I do. It's not about me. Because typically when we wake up, when we put our feet on the floor in the morning, what's the first thing we're thinking? About ourselves. Right? Like the old hymn we sing, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Right? Bring me back. It's so true. What we need reminded of is what this book of Jonah points us to. But it's not about Jonah, it's not about the fish, it's not about the people of Nineveh. Who's it about? It's about God. This book reveals three glaring truths that just jump out of the text to us. And they jump out from us from this story. And on the back of your bulletins, I would just ask you to write these down because I want you to remember these. Because these three things are at the very heart of what can take our focus off of ourselves from an internal focus and take us to an eternal focus. The first glaring truth that we see is this. It reveals God as the sovereign creator. Look back at chapter 1. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. 
Verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Verse 3 of chapter 2. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. All your waves and your billows. Jonah's recognized that God's in control. He's the sovereign creator. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then verse 10, look at this. The Lord appoints a great fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. This is God. We learn that God's in control of our trials from chapter 2. In chapter 4, look at verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant. In verse 7, they appointed a worm. Verse 8, he appointed a scorching east wind. See, God's in control of the wind, the sea, the fish, the waves, the plant, the worm, the mariners, and yes, even our trials. Amen? Now, the Bible's clear that God does not cause all of our trials. Some he does. Here, clearly, God was, he was the author of every single one of Jonah's in this place. It's also clear that in the rest of Scripture that God doesn't cause all of our trials, but we better believe that He's in control of them. Amen? Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for good. Now, I know that's a difficult passage because there might be some things that we look at and we say, how could God possibly be in control of this? How could, how could God manage this for good? I think there's things we could look back in history and say, I just, I just have a hard time seeing that. I'll just share a quick story with you. Um, those of you who know my wife, Deva, um, Deva's mom died when my wife was 15. And it wasn't, um, it was tragic. Um, she was going up over a gravel road and two cars full of high school kids were driving up the other side playing chicken. And they met her mother up on the other side of the road, hit head on, killed her devastating as a 15 year old having your mother and all the emotions that go through that I mean, it just tore her up now we look at that situation we say how could anything possibly good come from that how could God work anything of that for good well one she was a believer amen so in reality there's a, an assurance that we know that She's actually sad for us, right, more than we are for her. But as we look back and the years unfold, there's probably things we have no idea that God's worked good from that. But one thing we actually, the years have revealed that we know for sure. Um, my wife's dad, they moved to a town uh, shortly after that. And uh, the town that they lived in, he married a gal who her brother was one of my best friends I played college with or I played, played college with. I did kind of play college, but um, <laughs> that's, that's not what I meant. Um, I played basketball with in college. And um, through him, I met my wife, and we got married. Through that, my wife was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. Uh, through that, we have two beautiful children that we would not have today had that not happened. Who knows what those are? We may... We may go on to eternity and not know all the good that God worked 
through that situation. But I know at the time, there's no possible way that you could consider or even fathom God working all things together for good. That God is sovereign creator. Amen? Even in our trials. The second thing we learn is this. Reveals God as supreme judge. See, it's not up to Jonah, is it? No. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. As God's people, we're called to be as witnesses to the ends of the earth. That includes your neighbor, your family, your friend, the town over, the states over, our country, the globe. We are to be his witnesses everywhere we go. God's goodness and his graciousness should be on our lips all the time. And we should be witnesses not only in how we live, but in what we say and what we do. And we're called to be his witnesses. Because he's the supreme judge. It's not up to us to decide who deserves God's grace because we know from this story what? No one deserves God's grace. We're just the messengers. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Amen? So it reveals God as sovereign creator, it reveals God as supreme judge, and the third one's this. Reveals God as gracious Savior. Jonah comes to this conclusion at the very end of chapter 2 and verse 9 when he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Isaiah 43, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If not, don't worry about it, I'll read it. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11 says this. This is, again, God calling them to be his witnesses. You are my witnesses, declare the, declare the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Ego e me, tetragrammaton, Yahweh, that you may know that I am God. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no what? Savior. This is the point that Jonah comes to. And he realizes salvation belongs to the Lord. <coughs> this story reveals God as the gracious Savior. As we close, I want to connect these three truths to the gospel itself. Matter of fact, these truths are at the heart of the gospel. So when we say that this reveals God as sovereign creator, God is sovereign creator, and we have what? Sinned against our creator. He's sovereign. His, his rule is law. Amen? And we've all fallen short. We've all sinned against our creator. That means you. That means me. And Jonah recognizes that in this story. And chapter 4 just sort of ends with this open-ended Statement, God asks the question, we're not ever given Jonah's answer. I don't know what that means. Jonah could have said, yeah, I know, but I don't like it. Yeah, I know. We don't, he, Jonah could have said, yeah, God, you're right. And so I need to, to stand up, and I need to go keep proclaiming that. I just proclaimed it to Nineveh. Who else you want me to tell it to? Who else am I to be the witness to that for? 
He could have done that. We don't know. But the question still stands for us today, doesn't it? God brings us all to that exact same place. And the question stands for us today. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city? Should I not have grace? Should I not have mercy on them too? They're my creation. I labored for them. Should I not care about them too? And if we are God's, aren't we to care about what he cares about? The question's there for us today. Reveals God as sovereign creator, and we've sinned against our creator. The second is he reveals God as supreme judge. Let's just be clear. We all like sort of like, the, you know, that, that fluffy rainbow, unicorns, fluffy white clouds, pink bunny preaching, right? Like everything's great and you're so wonderful, right? I see some of your faces, you're like me, I don't really like that either. But some people do, right? I just want the truth, amen? The hard truth of this passage is at the end of chapter, chapter 3. Look at verse 9. After Nineveh repents, the king says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. He may relent and turn from his fierce anger. We learn that God's attributes are all right. He's just. He does what's right. Amen? God is wrath. He hates sin. But what we see over and over in the story, that the other side, he's perfect love. He's perfect wrath. He's perfect love. He's perfect, perfect patience, kindness, long-suffering. Jonah knew that God is abounding in steadfast love, and he's patient and kind and relents. He's forgiving. Jonah knew that. That's why he didn't want to go witness. But the reality and the truth is, if we hear the message, we don't turn. We all know what would have happened to Nineveh. We all know what would have happened to Jonah. God is wrath and judgment, and they're real. Hell is real, but let me just tell you this. And our wages, what we've earned, is that's what we deserve. And 3.9 tells us that. But let me also tell you this. I don't know of any place in Scripture, matter of fact, I can say with confidence, there is no greater place in Scripture where we see all of God's perfect attributes his love, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his kindness, his truthfulness, his just, righteous wrath. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that on full display is on the very cross of Calvary. Where God, in his righteous wrath and anger for sin, pours out on Christ himself. But at the exact same time, we see the most perfect expression of love and grace and mercy than on the cross of Christ, where Jesus says, it is finished. Where God the Son took on the full wrath and measure of God the Father. There's no greater love, there's no greater wrath, there's no greater mercy than what we see on the very cross of Christ itself. God judged sin on the cross. 
And we see that as him as supreme judge in this book of Jonah. And the last one's this. Reveals God as the gracious Savior. We've been given the gospel, which offers forgiveness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in this story of Jonah, the story of Jonah points us to Christ and his gospel. Amen? That for all of those who look internally at the truths that we talked about this morning, that we all fall short, and you say, yes, and it grieves me. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1, where he got a glimpse into heaven. The very first message that we preached here was um, Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, where Peter, actually for the first time, is revealed to him, Jesus is Lord, and it crushed him. And he fell down at his feet, and he, he looked at his own unworthiness and was prostrate on his face and, and was devastated by the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. I see as six said the exact same thing. He was crushed by it. He seen his own depravity. That's the idea that we understand when we repent and believe. And this story of repentance is a common theme throughout Jonah, that we're turning from our sin and turning towards Christ. That we don't want to walk in the same manner that we were, that's unworthy of Christ, that we turn and, and, and run towards Christ. It's a, an about face. Isaiah seen this in the same thing. Isaiah 6, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah, he said he saw seraphim. And they had six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it said, the foundations of the threshold shook of the voice of him who called. And Isaiah, being presented with the holiness of Christ, the holiness of God, fell on his face and he said, woe is me. King James says he was undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I got a dirty mouth, he said. I live amongst a people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we gaze into the eyes of Jesus, when we look at Christ, and we look of our undeserved merit and favor, it should crush each and every one of us. But not a crushing of hopelessness. It's a crushing of humility and thankfulness for the goodness of God and His grace and His mercy. That's what the story of Jonah is about. His goodness and His grace, and that should cause us to, to turn from our sin and to turn towards God. That's repentance. And to place your faith and trust in God and Him alone. Amen? And I'll tell you this morning, if you've never done that, you can do it right where you sit. As you ponder the Word, you can do it tomorrow. I would plead with you to do it now. And those of you that know what I'm talking about, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen the goodness of God. You've seen His just, His righteousness. And that's caused you to want to serve Him and love Him. Amen? And that's available to each and every one of us because it's not about us. It's about God, His goodness, His grace, and His mercy and His love. And the story of Jonah points us to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are...
thankful this morning as you've spoken to us in the word of Jonah and revealed your favor to men. You've revealed your attributes of, of love and grace and kindness and you've also reminded us of your justness, of your goodness and your holiness. You hate sin. But in loving kindness, you offer forgiveness and reconciliation to all who would believe. Father, we are so grateful and we thank you for that. As we look at your sovereign control and you've worked throughout history and, and Father, even in each of our lives, Father, we thank you for your patience. Just like Jonah, we recognize your abounding and steadfast love. Father, forgive me. I don't always recognize your love and your forgiveness, and sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm, I'm bitter like Jonah. Things don't go the way I think that they should go, and I have an internal focus. I start to think that it's all about me. Father, it's in those moments where I just need to stop and, and turn to you and praise your holy name. I remind myself that it's not about me. It's about you. And it's about being witnesses for your name and your glory. Father, forgive us when we don't have that eternal perspective that you would have us to have. Father, but we relish and stand here in the midst of your gracious goodness. As here in a moment, we're going to stand and sing your praises. Father, it's on our hearts and our mind as we sing these words of your goodness. You're a good God. You're a good Father. You're abounding in steadfast love. And Father, you are worthy of all of our praise. Father, daily align our hearts with yours to be a people on mission for you. Father, we thank you for this, for your great mercy and your love. In Jesus we pray, amen.